0: What a reminder of just the joy of walking with Christ, of humbling, submitting ourselves as a sacrifice. There is joy in having the right walk with Christ. And our passage this morning we're actually going to see a narrative of actually the opposite of that. <laughs> actually, the opposite of walking right with the Lord instead of a life who, of someone who has rejected the Lord and has come to destruction because of that. So since Rick is gone, we're going to be taking a break from Ephesians, and we're going to be spending some time in the Old Testament. One of the most just bizarre just narratives that I know it is, a story, it is a story that you would expect to find in a play of Shakespeare or possibly a fantasy novel like Lord of the Rings or something like that. It's a story of a mad king that will stop at nothing to hold on to his reign and his power, and his madness drives him to seek help from the underworld, help from witchcraft. So if you could, please take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28, this morning we are going to cover the story of King Saul in the medium of indoor. 1 Samuel chapter 28. As you're turning there, normally at the beginning of sermon, I would read the whole passage right off the bat and then go from there. But This is a passage that I'm just going to piece together a little bit throughout the sermon. I'm going to read the whole thing. Just it's going to be throughout. We're going to let this story just kind of naturally unfold as we go. This story that we had before us this morning, this story is a tragedy every sense of the word. We use the word tragedy in many different contexts, in many different ways, sometimes sarcastically in mild situations, all the way to the just most gravest, just most severe situations. I mean, we've seen some of that this week where we're reading the newspapers and we say, this is a tragedy. Tragedy is simply just a a disastrous event or a disastrous series of events. Simply, a tragedy is something where some, there's some kind of destruction of some kind or somebody heading to destruction. Another way that we use the word tragedy is actually in the genre of, of, of literary, um, typically considering, concerning the downfall of a great man. As an example, Shakespeare is actually known for his tragedies. Now, I'm going to confess I have never been a fan of Shakespeare, mostly because I do not have the time, the energy, or the intelligence to become an avid reader of Shakespeare. However, I do remember back in high school where, sitting in English class, I was not a very good student at the time. And I remember being really bored until all of a sudden my teacher started a new teaching series that was covering Shakespearean tragedy, stories like Hamlet and Julius Caesar and Macbeth. And I remember becoming quite fascinated by these stories of just great men falling and coming to destruction. They are very fascinating. And these tragedies, they're a tragedy because when you're reading them and you're going through the plot, you tend to think, man, if only they would make another decision, if only their circumstances were different, if only something different would happen, then maybe this just projection of their life would end from destruction and would have a happier ending. So if only something would change, then maybe the story would change. Now, if you stop there, you've missed the point of a good tragedy. The point of a tragedy is it's not that it could have ended some other way. The point is it had to end that way. It had to end in destruction. The reason why is because it's not based on circumstances or bad decisions. It's based on the man. It is the man himself that destroys himself. It is his nature that brings destruction. Every decision, every circumstance, he responds in the wrong way because of himself, and that is what brings on the tragic ending of the story. It is their nature that destroys them. Now, like I've already said, I do not spend much time uh, meditating and thinking about Shakespeare, but true accounts of a hardened heart that is leading a walk in sin, a walk to destruction is a problem that is throughout all of scripture, it is a problem that's throughout all of scripture. And also we see it in just our everyday life. It is a universal problem of people tragically heading to destruction based on their own sinful nature. Jeremiah 17, 9 states, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, who can understand it? And people were born with sinful hearts that are so deceitful that they are consumed with selfishness and everything, but what they should be focused on, they fear everything but God. They worship everything but God. That is the problem that all people are born into. And also, Proverbs chapter 9.10 says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of Wisdom. So you have hearts that fear everything but God, and that causes them to lead a life that is unwise, where, contrast to that, living with fear of the Lord, you have wisdom. It's a life where you make decisions based on who God is, and because of that, you live a life that is full of wisdom, and you go down the right path. Path and rejecting that, rejecting God is rejecting wisdom, and it is actually accepting a life of ruin. That is what all of us are born into. And the problem with most people's lives is not the circumstances, it's not bad decisions, it is a deceitful heart that fears everything in the world but the one thing that it should fear, and that is God. That is the Lord. That is a universal problem. So, our story this morning. The story of King Saul, it is very unique in many ways. But a sinful heart falling into madness, that is universal. That is something that still all of us has dealt with. And as we cover this passage this morning, we will find that there are way too far too many applications that apply to ourselves than what you would originally think when you first read this passage. So in 1 Samuel chapter 28, we are going to uncover four tragic responses of an unrepented heart that does not fear God. Four tragic responses of an unrepented heart that, that that does not fear God. The deceitfulness of an unrepented heart results in tragic destruction because every reaction, every response that's made is based on selfishness rather than focused on God. That is the problem, and that's the problem we are going to see in our passage this morning. So the first tragic response that we will uncover in the first act of this narrative, if you will, is the fear for self-preservation in verses 1 through 6. The fear for self-preservation. Verse 1 starts off with a very serious problem. Look down verse 1 with me. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. So at this time, there's a grave threat, and that is the Philistines. Now, even though this is a grave threat, this was actually something that was very common to Israel. This was nothing new. This, there's nothing new under the sun. The Philistines were nothing new for Israel. In fact, this goes back all the way centuries into the book of Joshua, where Israel went to the land, was supposed to conquer it, driving out all the Gentile nations. They failed to do so. They refused to do so. And so that started a history of them being influenced by these, by these Gentile nations. They would fall into idolatry. God would send one of these four nations to punish them, which would cause them to then repent. God would send a deliverer and then the whole cycle would just go over and over and over all the way through the book of Judges and to the story that we're at this morning. So these Philistines were used many times from God to actually, actually to punish the nation of Israel for their sins and here there is nothing new. Now, at this time, God had previously sent a man to deliver Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. And that man's name was Saul. That's probably not the name you're probably thinking of. But it's true. In chapter nine, sixteen, God told Samuel, the judge at that time, the, the spiritual leader during that time, to anoint Saul as king to actually free the Israelites from oppression of the Philistines. That's what Saul was sent to do. That's what he was supposed to do. But as we know... Saul fell into sin in many different ways, and that sin actually led to him being rejected as king, and Samuel actually was sent from God to reject him, and then also anoint David to be the rightful king of Israel. There is so much history that goes into this this story that I wish we had more time to cover, But this is something where you're talking two nations with all this history are clashing. You're talking, there's so many relationships between Samuel, David, Saul, that all comes into this story. It's not just a story by itself. It is connected to many things. Now, in this passage alone, in this chapter 28, the author himself gives a little bit of background info to kind of set up the story in verses one through three. And the first scene of this background information is a strange conversation between David and Achish, the king of the city of Gath, one of the major Philistine cities. And yes, this is the David you're thinking of. You're you're talking, this is David, the man who had killed the most famous Philistine during that time, Goliath, and had killed so many other Philistines that people sang songs about him. And here he is with the king of the Philistines. This is a bizarre situation to be in. So this is the conversation they had, they had starting at the end of verse 1. And Achish said to David, know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, very well. You shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, very well. I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now this bizarre conversation actually starts in the beginning of chapter 27 where David is forced to flee to the Phil- to the Philistines. He flees to the Philistines and he's actually given land. Achish gives him the land of Ziglag and David is almost kind of like a vassal or a knight that is over this property but pays homage to the main lord of the area which is which is uh, Achish at the time. But more than that, based on this conversation Achish is actually asking David to become his personal bodyguard. And the original language here in the Hebrew is very ironic. Bodyguard means a guard over my head. So you have the man who was the one who was famous for cutting off the head of Goliath, the most famous Philistine, and now he is the one who looks like his life is leading to being the bodyguard over this king, this Philistine king over Gath, Achish. This is bizarre. This is bizarre a world where everything's backwards. Up is down, left is right, black is white. David's with the Philistines. I mean, this is absolutely insanity to see this happen. How could this happen? This is something that you read and you're like, how in the world could this happen? And we're told in chapter 27, it happened. David fled to the Philistines because it was the only safe place from Saul. He was the one who was the, the rightful anointed king of Israel. Saul was not happy with that. So he was chasing David through the ends of the earth, seeking his life so much. So David's final conclusion is I need to go to the Philistines because I know Saul will not go there. That is how you find David with the Philistines. The madness and murderous heart of Saul had driven Israel's greatest warrior to be with the king of the enemy. This is a bizarre situation. Bizarre situation. This is a terrible situation. And so we have that background information before us. And now the next piece, starting in verse three, author continues. Now Samuel was dead and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. So Samuel, which the author's talking about, is a colossal figure within this book. He's the one that the book's named after, first and second Samuel. He is the last judge of Israel before they had a king. He would have been the spiritual leader of Israel. He was a man chosen by God to lead Israel and also anoint Israel's first king which is Saul. Samuel had a deep, deep history with Saul. He was the one who anointed him as king. He was the one who God sent to reject him as king and also tell him that God had chosen another, which is David, who scripture says is a man after God's own heart. There was deep history between Samuel and Saul that leads into this story. And then the last piece of background information that the author gives us is in verse three. The end of verse three says, says, and Saul had removed from the land those, were, those who were mediums and spiritists. Now, this background information is going to be very, very crucial later on. So, first question is, well, who are these people? Who are these mediums? Who are these uh, spiritists? As I love how the King James says wizards. Um, they were people that just, if you piece together through different passages of Scripture, they were those who consulted with the dead through witchcraft, through demonic practices that was steeped in idolatry. These were people that they they sold their pr- wicked practices of being able to make money off of helping you communicate with the dead. It was just it was practices that was based in witchcraft and just demonic idolatry. These were wicked wicked people. Now, Saul had removed them from the land because that's what you did as king. It's in the law. It's in Leviticus. It's in Deuteronomy that God said you must remove these people from the land. These people were detestable to the Lord because of their wicked practices. But that's not quite all. That's not quite all. There was another reason why God wanted them gone and did not want his people consulting with these uh, mediums, Isaiah 8:19 9, sheds some light on this. God is addressing the Israelites for actually the way that they have reached out to these mediums, and this is what Isaiah 8:19 says: When they say to you, "Consult the mediums and the spiritists who m- whisper and mutter," should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? I mean, that's a backwards thing. You have, some, you have the living God who you can cry out to, pray to, and here the Israelites are their God. They have the living God, and yet they're reaching out to people. They're trying to consult with the dead. It makes no sense to reject God and, pra- and participate in the practice of these just demonic relationships trying to reach the dead. It makes no sense whatsoever when you have a living God. So that was part of the background information going to the story. So David's with the Philistines, Samuel's dead, and then also you have Saul had removed these wicked people, these mediums from, from the area. So now, starting verse 4, we dive back into our story with this background information before us. Look at verse 4. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all of Israel together, and they camped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, and this is the important part, when he saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. So once again, Saul is in the situation of the threat of the Philistines. And as we know, this is a common threat. This is something that's happened throughout his life. Now, it's so interesting that it was his heart that was trembling in fear. Now in scripture, the heart is described as the mission control center, if you will, of just everything you are as a human being. So it's everything who Saul was, was trembling in fear before this threat of this foreign invasion, this foreign army of the Philistines. And now it's really interesting when you think of Saul's history. Here's this threat which is nothing new to him, it would not have been this long ago that Saul saw God use an adolescent boy, David, to kill a giant, Goliath, and completely change history. He witnessed that. Not just that, but Saul himself was a warrior and God had used many, many times to defeat the Philistines. This is in Saul's history. And here you have a man with that history who's seen all these amazing things. And what is he doing? Once again, there's a threat of the Philistines and he is completely crippled in fear. Completely crippled in fear. And... As he should have known, the Philistines were nothing compared to God. And yet, he is crippled in fear. His heart is completely consumed with fear. Now, Saul shouldn't know what to do. At first, he seemingly does the right thing. At verse 6, it says, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So Saul inquires of the Lord, but there's a huge problem. The problem is the Lord does not answer. Now, during this time, the Lord communicated in many ways um, to his people, to kings, through dreams, as it says, through Urm, which would have been actually like these stones on the breastplate of the high priest that they would have kind of cast his lots. Um, and also, as he says, through the prophets. And through all of these modes, the Lord is silent. And so this is the part of the story where we find out Saul has a bigger problem than the Philistines. The problem with Saul is his relationship with God. That is the main problem. God's silence is a deafening threat right here. And however, it should have been expected. It should have been expected because Saul knew that at this time that he had been rejected as king, and David was the one who was the rightful anointed king of Israel. And instead of accepting that truth, what did he do? He chased David around the whole territory, trying to kill him. He had been rejected as king. He already knew this. This should have been something that he had expected. Samuel had told him that he had been rejected as king. Not only that, but Saul even admits it to David himself. All of you know the story of the cave where, where Saul goes into the cave and David had a chance to kill him, but then doesn't. And then they talk to each other outside and David is confronting Saul. And this is what Saul says to David. He says, now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. That's something that Saul knew. And then yet what did he do? Right back to chasing David. Right back to chasing David, rejecting the word of the Lord, and trying to hold on to his reign through selfish, through selfish means. This problem of God being silent, there was only one game plan. The game plan should have been repent to the Lord and go find David, the one who was going to establish the kingdom, the rightful king of Israel. That should have been the game plan to humbly repent and turn from his sin and yet. What does he do? He doesn't fear the Lord. He does not respond out of fear of the Lord by doing the right thing. Instead, he responds to the Philistines by coming up with another, with another plan. And at this point, there is no other plan. I mean, if God is silent and he's the only one that can deliver you, there is no other plan. And yet, for an unrepentant heart that does not fear God there's always another plan. There's always another plan. So Saul responds to this threat by abandoning plan A, which is inquiring of the Lord, and going with plan B, which we're going to see in a minute. This is such a picture of just, what a picture just the deceitfulness of a sinful heart. People should fear God above all, and yet they feel worldly circumstances that threaten their comfort or self-preservation. We always fear the wrong things if we have lost focus on who God is. So here we'll move into act two of the story, verses seven through 14, and we will uncover the second response of an unrepentant heart that does not fear God. And the second response is the seeking of worldly deliverance, verses seven through 14. So Saul abandons plan A, and he goes to plan B. Verse seven, then Saul said to his servants, seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So as we already know, Saul is actually known for removing these types of people. He has expended much energy and much time getting rid of these mediums. And in a stunning act of hypocrisy, Instead of inquiring of the Lord, what does he do? He goes to these people that he knows is supposed to be removed because of their wickedness. This is a stunning act of hypocrisy. So he goes from plan A, which is inquiring of the Lord, to plan B, inquiring of a witch. This is stunning and just how blind his heart is in hypocrisy. Now, there's something really interesting. This is where geography actually kind of matters within the story. This uh, medium lived in Endor. Now, Indoor would have been about two to three miles north of Shunem, which were where the Philistines were encamped, which means going to visit this woman would have been going through enemy territory. It would have actually been a very risky mission. To go see this lady, this would not be just kind of going down the street and trying to see some palm reader and sneak out before anybody saw it. It's not that. This is something that when they said this woman lives in indoor, he should say, well, we're not doing that. That would be crazy. However, Saul, in his desperation, he commits to the plan. And they commit to plan B, which is going to indoor. So verse 8, then Saul disguised, disguised himself by putting on other clothes, and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me whom I shall name to you. So Saul in just blind hypocrisy, he is now traveling under the cover of night, disguised to meet with this person that he knows is despicable to God, that God detests to seek deliverance for himself. It is just amazing how somebody can be so just blind to their own hypocrisy. Now, this woman, this woman was no fool. There's a reason why she was still around after everybody had been removed. And she wasn't about to do anything before she found out who these people were. So she responds, verse 9, But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land? Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? So this woman knew the cost of practicing these demonic practices to actually conjure up people from the dead. She knew the cost and was greatly afraid of that. And I'm sure she was probably a little suspicious of these guys coming to her at night. And she had reasons to be so cautious. The reasons why is because people like her had been driven out. They were driven out by the king. This probably happened over years. She probably knew personal stories of people that she knew that this has happened to, that because of what they were doing, they were driven out of the land possibly killed for their evil acts. This is something that she definitely knew. So she wasn't going to do anything without being reassured. So Saul reassures her with a vow. And it's not just any vow. Look down at verse 10. Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So Saul doesn't just reassure her, but he makes the greatest vow of all vows and the greatest name of all, which is Yahweh the Lord. God, the one who detests these kind of practices, these type of people, he is saying it will be in the name of that God that you are protected. He makes a solemn vow in the name of Yahweh. And right here, I mean, just the deceitfulness of his heart is on full display as in desperation he's looking for deliverance from the problem that he has with the Philistines. So verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And now we've already been introduced to Samuel. Samuel was the last judge of Israel. He would have been a spiritual leader of Israel. And at this time, he had been dead and buried. And as a spiritual leader, he probably was the very one that probably advised Saul, not just in all spiritual matters and not just probably how to, as a king, carry out the law. But part of that is he probably advised him how to deal with these mediums and casting them out. Saul would have been a spiritual, Samuel rather, would have been a spiritual advisor to Saul and how to rightfully carry out the law. Part of that would have been driving people like this out. So this is Saul's plan. You just have to stop here for a second. just, Just in amazement that this is Saul's plan to go to this woman and in these wicked practices, call up a man of God that spent his entire life doing the Lord's work. This is pure insanity. That this is Saul's plan. And not just that, but it's also insane for Saul to think that it would actually work that Samuel, a godly man, was going to be brought up by such wicked practices? That this was actually his expectation that this would happen? I mean, this is complete insane plan. And the most craziest thing about it is, it works. It works. And obviously, it's not because of the medium's demonic powers or tricks of illusion, however she did these things, it was because God was going to give Saul what he desired, and Saul was going to get a message from Samuel. This is something God let happen. He gave Saul his desire because God actually has a message for Saul. So verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. So Samuel appears to this medium. She completely loses it. (laughs) She completely freaks out. And she's completely shocked. And now there's a lot of debate here of why she was shocked. And we don't quite know the answer. There's a lot of mystery here. It could be that she was a complete charlatan and was shocked that this actually worked for the first time. Um, It could have been that she's experienced some kind of demonic interactions before, but thought, well, there's no way that this is going to work with a man of God. And yet it does. There's a lot of mystery here of why she was shocked. However, with all of that, it's really interesting just by the plain reading of the text. By the plain reading of the text, she doesn't seem to be as necessarily surprised With Samuel, but there's actually something about seeing Samuel that causes her to understand who's with her in the room, which is Saul. She is completely shocked and terrified to learn that the man who has come to her in the cover of night is the man who she's probably feared for years and decades, the king who has completely driven out her kind and punished people like her for her practices. And now, in just her greatest nightmare, come to reality, that man is in her house watching her do the practices in which he has drove people like her out for. I mean, that would have been a pretty great shock to be in that, to realize this man who you have feared for years, he's now in your house watching you do this. However, she had nothing to be feared. She was in no danger. And it was because this king Cared more about his self preservation than he cared about God's view of such practices. So she was in no danger. So, verse 13, the king said to her, Do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed down with his face to the ground and did homage." So Saul, this completely insane plan, it works. And he is now in the presence of Samuel, the very man who used to advise Saul during his lifetime is now going to advise him from the grave. This is a spooky scene. (laughs) This is a spooky scene. It's night, Saul's with a witch. And now the ghost of Samuel is now present. Is now present. This is kind of a spooky scene. And yet the scariest thing about everything in which we're reading right now is actually the hardened heart from Saul that has brought on this series of events. There's nothing more terrifying than seeing a hardened heart seeking fulfillment or deliverance through anything outside the sovereign God and thinking that's actually going to work. That that's actually going to be something that's going to give deliverance. And what's even more terrifying is for somebody with a sinful, hardened heart going headlong into destruction and God gives them what they want. That God actually lets it happen. There is no correction. There is no stopping actually gives that person what they want. And that's what's happening with Saul right now. This is terrifying. There's nothing more terrifying than a hardened, than a hardened heart, an unrepentant heart, heading headlong into sin and left unchecked. That is, it's somebody who's heading for destruction. And this leads to the third response of an unrepented heart that does not fear God. And that is in verses 15 through 19, the shock of self-inflicted ruin the shock of self-inflicted ruin. So Saul is now having a reunion with Samuel, a man that he knew, the man that actually had used, God had used him to anoint him as king, reject him as king. He's now having a conversation with him. Verse 15, then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? You wonder, Saul's come all this way, and you think, what's going to be the first words out of Samuel's mouth? And it's words of irritation. He says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I mean, that was probably not what Saul was hoping to hear. It's just Samuel just kind of, really kind of mad and chiding him. So it's almost comical if it wasn't such a grave situation. So Saul brushes that off, and he tells Samuel why he has been disturbed. And once again, it's because He fears the Philistines. And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may make known to me what I should do. And here's where you have to stop. You have to stop for a second, and you have to think. What did Saul think was going to happen now? What was Samuel going to say? You almost have to think that that Saul thought that Samuel was just going to be kind of some genie in a lamp that all of a sudden is going to pop up and solve all his problems. But the problem is, he's not talking to some mystical, mystical apparition. He's actually talking to Samuel. And he must have Expected that Samuel was going to give him something that was some words of wisdom that was going to deliver him or just magically somehow fix his problem. But in complete contrast to that, instead, Samuel actually just reminds Saul of something he should have already known. Look at verse 16. Samuel said, Why then do you ask of me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and has given it to your neighbor, to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. So Samuel does not give Saul any new revelation, but actually things that he has already told him during his life and that is Saul had disobeyed God and God had removed him as king so here here he is reminded his problem is not with the Philistines Saul's problem is with God it is God that is his adversary it is God that is his enemy which is a worse problem than the Philistines this is the gravest of problems so Samuel just reminds Saul of what he already knows. And now Saul sinned against God in many ways. Now, the thing that he did right before he was rejected was going back earlier in chapter 15, God had sent him to destroy the city of Amalek, the Amalekite city because of their great wickedness. And if you remember the story, Saul was supposed to go in and he was supposed to destroy everything, everything, including even the livestock he was supposed to destroy. And yet, he did not listen to God. He did go in, he did fight, he destroyed a lot of things, but he allowed some of the people to keep some of the best livestock. He did not obey the Lord. And now a highlight that I just want to kind of take from that story is this. Once Samuel confronted Saul for his wickedness and not obeying the Lord and carrying carrying out all the Lord's commands. In 1 Samuel 15, 24, this is Saul's response to him. He says, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared people and listened to their voice. So Saul Back when this happened, he had let the people keep some of the choices, livestock, and it was not because he feared the Lord, not because he thought it'd be great to have these animals. It was because he feared people. He was a man pleaser. He was the one that people were coming to him saying, let's keep this stuff. He's all right, all right. Just make whatever to do to make you happy. He feared people more than he did obeying the Lord and his commands. And here, now we get to this story and we see nothing has changed. Here Samuel, Samuel is telling Saul, this is what you did. This is the reason why the Lord rejected you. And here Saul is, there has not been anything that has changed. He still fears men more than he fears God. There has been no repentance in, in his life. So Samuel reminds, him of, Samuel reminds Saul of something he already knew, but he doesn't stop there. Now he gives him further revelation of something that Saul does not know. Look down at verse 19. He says, Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. So what is this new revelation that Samuel gives Saul? Israel is going to fall to the enemy. And not just that, but he also says, Samuel, being dead, says, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me, which is terrifying words to hear from a dead man. Now, this is not like Jesus telling the thief on the cross tonight, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, I truly believe, just by what we know about the afterlife through scripture, that yes, Samuel was in heaven, a God-fearing man. He was with God. He's not using the, the term afterlife in those senses, more of the Old Testament sense of Sheol, which would have been a broader description of just the grave in general. Samuel is telling Saul that he is going to the grave, him and his sons, which is the opposite of what Saul wanted here. He wanted deliverance. And yet this is the news he gets. First, First Chronicles actually is kind of helpful in this story. First Chronicle's account of just kind of giving a summary of Saul going to uh, this medium. And in First Chronicles 10:13 says this: "So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. And also because he asked counsel of a medium making inquiry of it. So this trip to Endor, which Saul just made, had terrible consequences. In some ways, this sealed Saul's fate. This life he had been living in unrepented sin to the Lord. It was this final act of wickedness, final act of hypocrisy in which God said that's enough. And because of that, this is what actually brought on his death. And Saul's reaction is the way he should react. He reacts with shock and terror. As it says, Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food either day or night. He's completely shocked by this. A man who should have understood the Lord, understood his sin, goes headlong into sin. What else does he expect but to actually be punished for the consequences of that sin. And yet he's completely shocked because does a sinful heart ever discern the dangers of sin? If that was true, we would never sin, right? (laughs) I mean, I've heard it said many times, even from our pastor, sin makes you stupid. We sin and think that we are not going to actually feel the consequences of that sin. And people are always shocked when all of a sudden their lives are completely destroyed by how they have sinned against God. It's not not that they look at their sin and think, well, yeah, I deserve that. No, it's complete shock. And that's what happens with Saul here. He responds in shock and terror because of this news that Samuel has given him. He thought he was going to get deliverance. He thought he was going to, get to go to Samuel and somehow Samuel was going to deliver him. And yet, what does he do? He actually gives him the shocking news of his destruction instead. This has not been a profitable trip to Indor by no means. And this leads to the fourth response of an unrepented heart in verses 21 through 25. And that is the acceptance of hopeless comfort. Verse 21, the woman said to Saul, and saw, the woman came to Saul rather, and saw that he was terrified and said to him, behold, your maidservant has obeyed you. And I have taken my life into my hand and have listened to your words in which you have spoken to me. So now also, please listen to the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. Notice that she calls herself his maidservant I mean, this woman has gone to a fugitive, and now now she personally knows, knows the king, right? I mean, Saul has been rejected by God, by Samuel, and now he is left with the only person to comfort him is this godless woman. I mean, this is a terrible situation. Verse 23, but he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to them. So he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it. And she took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. The ending of this story is very, it seems very anticlimactic. It's just kind of like, oh, well, that's that's the end. And yet, it's what doesn't happen here seems to be the most profound part of the story After this news that Samuel has given Saul, you think Saul would have spent every last moment of his life, every last breath in his lungs, spending all night crying out for repentance to God, ripping his clothes, sackcloth and ashes. Just maybe God will change his mind. I mean, Scripture reveals God is a God of loving kindness, which Saul knew. Even though, even though if God wouldn't change his mind, you think he would at least tried, just based on what he knows about God and His loving kindness. Instead of doing that, instead of spending every last moment crying out for forgiveness, he just simply eats a steak and leaves. It's so anticlimactic, but in some ways, it's so profound that him just accepting. Just his fate, accepting this hopeless comfort from this lady, he's just going to eat and move on because tomorrow he's going to die. He is just so accepting of it. Instead of crying out for forgiveness, he just accepts his fate and he moves on. And you almost have to wonder here, we don't know, but you almost have to wonder if he was already working on plan C, that he'll just do it himself. I mean, he's a commander over an army. He's had countless victories. Maybe he'll just be able to work things out. We, we don't know. We don't know, but we do know the end of the story. The end of the story is the next day, Saul is overrun by archers. And in fear of being tortured by the Philistines, he takes his own life. And the Philistines find him the next day. They mutilate his body. They hang him on a bridge for the world to witness the end of Israel's first king. This is a dark story. This is a dark story. This story is a tragedy, a complete tragedy. Saul's end is so shocking and it is terrifying. A man who was anointed by God had the spiritual counsel of a man like Samuel and yet fell into sin, and then remained unrepentant that brought this kind of destruction upon him. The most terrifying part of this story is how someone can be brought to such insanity by the deceitfulness of their heart. That is the terrifying part of this story. This is a unique story. It's a unique story in so many ways. But the tragic implications of a sinful heart blind to the consequences of sin, heading to destruction, that is universal. That is a universal problem. It is natural for sinners to fear fear worldly threats more than God, to turn to worldly resources for deliverance rather than seeking the Lord. It is natural for a sinful heart to, instead of crying out for forgiveness, just in shock of the consequences of sin, just accept worldly comforts and move on. It is natural for a sinful heart to respond that way. And here's where we need to examine ourselves. Here's where we need to examine ourselves. Do we fear sinning against a holy God more than we fear and are consumed with just the temporary troubles of this world? Do we fear the temporary problems of life more than we fear sinning against a holy God? Left to ourselves, there's only one ending of the story, and, le- and that is tragedy. Left to ourselves and our, our own sinful nature, that only has a tragic ending. And yet, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. If we look at the story of Saul, it's a pretty hopeless story. But here's where we need to look to another king. As we know, God is a God who keeps promises, and he had promised that there was going to be a king, not from the line of Saul, but the line of David, who would be the king who reigns in righteousness. And we know that God has kept that promise, and that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. That has already come to earth. He has lived perfectly, the only perfect man to ever lived. And he died on a cross to take the sins away for those who would put their faith in him, in him alone, and repent of their sins. And the good news is he's coming back. He's coming back and he's going to rule from the throne of David. And through faith in him and him alone, there's salvation. And Christians are given a new heart and a new mind that is awakened to spiritual truth of God. And now, as Christians, God dwells within us and directs us. And the story of a Christian isn't anything but a tragedy, but it is one of forgiveness, grace, and redemption. That is the story of a Christian. And for, you, for those of you who do not know the Lord or have lots of questions, I would beg you, now is the time to trust him. For salvation, to turn from selfishness and repent. There is a holy God who has offered salvation through his son. That is the good news. And to reject that would be madness, to reject such a salvation. So if you have any questions of the gospel or what it means to be a Christian, please come up afterwards and please talk to one of our elders here in the prayer room. We would love to talk to you about that. Now, as for Christians... we should look at this story and we need to be reminded of what God has done for us. He has been, he has pulled us from the tragedy of destruction to reconciliation in a renewed relationship with him and our knowledge of him and his salvation that he has provided for us. That should cause us to have a reverence and a fear of him and should cause us to walk in wisdom and worship him. We need to be quick to repent. We need to be quick to repent and grow in the knowledge of our Lord and live a life seeking him and his provision. He has done great things for us. There's so much hope and there's so much joy that is available through God the Father and what he has done through God the Son. And we need to be the ones who rest in his provision and his provision only. The life of a Christian is anything but a tragedy, amen?